The relationship between sound and emotion, psychoacoustics and society, music and memory, it's a deep one. Something as simple as a drone like this, built from a reverberating human voice, can change the way we feel in any given moment. And when moments like those gather and accumulate over time, we tend to think of them as movements or trends. We look back on certain time periods and we see tendencies, the way things were made, the way they sounded. And then we extrapolate larger ideas about what was important culturally, what people valued. I think back on the music of my own childhood, the music that informed my sense of what was popular, what was contemporary, how songs were written, how they were produced, and above all, how they made me feel. If I close my eyes, I'm 10, 11 years old, in the car with my mom, driving to school, listening to the radio. The radio, along with MTV, was our teacher. The radio was our guide to understand what was popular, and by extension, what mattered. So a scan of the FM dial could tell you a lot about who you were, where you were, and when you were. You too, Peter Gabriel, Bob Dylan, Emmylou Harris, the Neville Brothers, Parachute Club, Luscious Jackson, Willie Nelson. What did all these records have in common? Each one was like a little message. But who was the messenger? And what were they trying to tell us? Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrin. This is Daniel Lenoir singing his song, The Messenger. It said that you were wounded. You were bound in You had loved and you were handled. You were poisoned. Daniel Lenoir was born to a French-speaking family on what he says was the wrong side of the tracks in Hull, Quebec. Music was at the center of his family life, though not professionally. It was just a form of connecting. When his parents split up, his mother moved with her kids to Ontario. It was the first of what would become a lifetime of travels that informed Daniel's work. As a French speaker, he found himself at a disadvantage in Ontario. He says he was told he was a dumb kid because he didn't speak English. And so he became disillusioned with school. But, as he also tells me, 
That pushed him into a corner that he needed to box his way out of, and luckily, he had music. Along with his brother Bob, Daniel set up a recording studio in their mother's basement in the 1970s and started making records. During the 10 years he spent recording in his mother's house, Lanois developed his approach, both technical and musical, to producing, working with artists, recording, and playing. Eventually, the producer and ambient music pioneer Brian Eno heard some of the work that Dan was doing in Ontario and approached him to work on his ambient records. The two developed a creative relationship that seems to endure to this day. It was Eno who brought Lanois into what would become some of their biggest projects, including ones for U2 and Peter Gabriel. Daniel is also a very accomplished musician, particularly as a steel guitar player. I think that the sound of the pedal steel has informed his general approach, a kind of atmospheric, almost longing-like cloud that hangs over much of his music. And although he spent much of his career in a supporting and collaborative position with artists and bands, he's also a deeply sensitive and sophisticated songwriter and composer too. As one of the most acclaimed and influential producers of the modern era, Daniel's personal point of view has informed and influenced a generation of music that still continues to resonate deeply today. He's won seven Grammys, he's composed scores for Oscar-winning films and video games too. But I think that beyond all that, Lanois is a searcher. He's perpetually on the hunt for something else, trying to squeeze another drop from the atmosphere. Which is how, this week, as he turns 71 years old, Daniel Lanois is releasing Player Piano, his first project of instrumental piano music. The compositions are concise but highly textured, and it was recorded at Lanois' studio in Toronto, a former Buddhist temple, with the help of his co-producer, Dangerous Wayne Lorenz. Daniel and I spoke recently via Zoom, he from that same studio and me from my place in Brooklyn. Visit third-story.com to sign up, subscribe, or see the archive. Hundreds of conversations with other brilliant creative minds, including more groundbreaking record producers like Butch Vig, Tommy LaPuma, John Leventhal, Andres Levine, Michael League, Creed Taylor, and more. Support the podcast at patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast. The Third Story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to find out more about their award-winning content. Here's me and Daniel Lanois talking it down. Holiday camp. We're trying to get work done. Fiddling around. Zoom schmoon. Trying to promote some of my best work here. Let's see what's who's on the air with me. Hang on. Just hold your horses. Here I am in a good mood, humble, funny, considerate to all, loving life and industry. How you doing there, my brother? Where are you? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, great. I had a nice time recently in Brooklyn. A friend of mine lives there, Trixie Whitley. She lives there in the neighborhood. And where am I finding you? Are you in Toronto? Yes, in Toronto. This is the uh, former monastery space that you're in buddhist monastery yes, exactly uh, the uh, the buddhist temple that's correct yeah can't see much of it because a bit of a shadow shadowy yeah. yeah as you approach the zoom computer station here you know you said you're in a good mood and you're going to do the zoom to promote some of your best work you know you said it a little <laughs> bit offhandedly but yeah. i wonder is that is that how you feel well if if we all agree that the universal language is instrumental music then uh Player Piano, Player, comma, Piano, is the name of my new record, and it, it is that. It is It has a little bit of um, communication in it because it doesn't have, you don't have to speak the language other than 
the language in your heart. Mm. And we hope that this little record uh, sparks uh, people's imaginations and then they, they can go to make their own film and so on. It started out as a, of something that was uh, very plain and simple, you know, done during the pandemic. And so didn't have to have uh, the orchestra in. <laughs> just played piano, and we found some very nice, inspiring sounds. And, and so that's how it started. And as I listen to it now, I can, having had a little time away from it, I, I think it has some transporting qualities to it. So I hope that holds true. There's a lot of information in that answer. The first one is, do we all agree that instrumental music is the, what, the most profound, the greatest uh, form of communication? I don't remember exactly what well, you said. Well, the... Uh, yeah, the universal language. Yes. Uh, well, who knows? Maybe chant music, you know, uh, chanting mantras would be part of that. And, you know, it's what I'm getting at is that there she goes, just a walking down the street is very specific, yeah. singing do wa diddy diddy dum diddy do. So that's, that's great. That's rock and roll. Yeah. But um, so this speaks another kind of, of language, and it might. Speak to someone who speaks no English, for example. Sure. I mean, I think that this thing that you're doing on this record is something that you've done on many records that have words also, which is to sort of paint these pictures, these kind of almost visual pictures with sound that help to reinforce a lyric. The only difference here is that there's no lyric to reinforce. There's just the pictures in your head. Yeah. <laughs> I like pictures. They come to me when I make music. It's just the way it is. Uh, Sometimes we'll play a little, a simple little melody that conjures up uh, an exotic, uh, and then I try and take it further than that. I say, well, let's let's imagine that we're in, in Morocco for a little bit, and that blue note, mm, that's beautiful, and we follow the scene that has already been established by um, the initial seed, let's call it, and then we just follow the uh, the growing of the vine from the seed, and and. If we're humble enough to let the music be our guide, then we get to these places where uh, a piece of music will really have a strong identity and feeling to it, mm -hmm. including a picture or a geographical location. Mm -hmm. But I do have a little story that goes with all this. Back in the day, I was working in the West Country of England with Peter Gabriel, and Rosanna Arquette walked in. And she's an old friend and was a good friend of Peter's at the time, and she sat on the session for a while. And then later at lunch, she said to me, you know, you remind me of Martin Scorsese. Hmm. You're the Martin Scorsese of record making mm -hmm. because everything, all your instructions are visual. And I never thought about it. And I'm glad she pointed it out to me. Thank you, Rosanna. It just comes with the dinner. You get Lanois, you get pictures. What did she mean your instructions are visual? Uh, like, what would an example be like that? I was conducting Peter and waving my arms, as I always do. Yeah. So, Peter, imagine that you're on a... And then off we went. So I can be specific about, uh, if you like, to see uh, the doorway to a thousand churches in someone's eyes is very much a picture. And that's one of one Peter's lyrics. And so when I hear that, I see a thousand churches. Mm -hmm. And then off we go with, with that as a starting point. And then it just keeps expanding through the day. And it doesn't matter what room you're in at that point because you've already traveled. Eyes, 
solution of all the fruitless I read an interview with you some years ago where you said that you didn't want to be a soundtrack guy, that that wasn't really your interest. I mean, some of your music has been used in soundtracks and games and all kinds of things, but that that wasn't the priority. But the priority seems to have been to make music that triggered a visual response in a listener <laughs> without sort of having to get into the whole yeah. business of being a film writer or a soundtrack yeah, guy. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's an interesting contradiction. Well, I suppose building something that has a picture on your own terms would be different than being presented with a scene that you need to enhance. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't criticize that. I, I quite like that challenge as well. And sometimes the simplest little ding, ding, dong, leave a long mm -hmm. Terrence Malick space so that he can dolly in. I <laughs> 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 quite like that. Uh, I did work with Terrence Malick. Uh, some years back, I went to see him in Austin, Texas. And he said, I like you, Lanois, because you leave me space to dolly in. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, composers I've worked with, they just fill every conceivable gap, but I want ding, ding, dong, dolly in. Dong, 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 dolly in. <laughs> <laughs> when you make a record like Player Piano, it sounds like a big part of it is a, a process of discovering what it is, right? That you, that you're following, pulling on a thread to to eventually achieve something. But it, it, I get the feeling that you didn't necessarily know what you were making when you started to make it. I think you're right, um, because I'm not a piano player. I didn't come up playing the piano. I came up as a steel guitar player and a Spanish guitar player. So when I go to the piano, I get excited about the simplest little thing that perhaps a more seasoned and better player would say, well, that's too simple. Let me play. Let me go to Stravinsky. <laughs> but I, I'm okay with coming up with a little, uh, a lovely little melody, as simple as it might be, a three or four note melody. And I'm excited about it. I love the sound of the piano. And that's all it takes for me. Get started with that. Lay down those three notes and then work out a... I didn't play everything all at once. Mm -hmm. You know, I did the left hand separately from the right on a good few titles. So that's where it gets interesting because I'll invent a melody for the right hand, let's say, and then find a complement on the left hand. And it gets very interesting at that point because that's what we call, uh, you know, it could be called the second line support line and it's what I do when I work with singers you know yes we have a, a melody and then maybe the other three voices should just do block singing don't follow the melody just sing the chord then other spots you will outline the melody with a lower harmony so the the piano afforded me uh, innocence and, and wonder and wander I was a child I'm glad that you bring that up. Like, how important is that sense of innocence and not knowing, especially as you get older and more successful and you have a deeper track record, you kind of know what you think works, to get back to that space of not knowing? That might be the hardest thing to do because if you've had a lot of life experience, you might get to a point where, well, we've done that and we've talked about that. I understand that, blah, blah, blah. And you're looking for the new thing, but the new thing may not come to you without the innocence. And so 
if only we had a reset button <laughs> and we can get to be a child again. Because mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the talent is always there in us who were lucky enough to be gifted. Um, and so how do we protect the gift? I think, personally, I think there's too much music out there. Um, I'm not talking about too many musicians. I don't have you ever been to a restaurant without music? Mm. Maybe Musso Franks <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we are bombarded with so much all the time, not only our own music as composers, mm. but we are hearing so much all the time that it, it, uh, <clears throat> it can pressure you and crush you a little bit and take away some of the innocence. Um, so I don't know what the answer is to this. Maybe, um, maybe, you know, finding that silent room for a while and or meditation might take, bring us back to, uh, the clean slate. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, that's, that's roughly the, uh, the lay of the land in modern times. But, um, yes, I'm working on the reset button <laughs> back to childhood. <laughs> it seems like you know, one strategy that you've had for a long time is to just up and move to a different location, reset the environment, and let the environment in some way mm -hmm. impact your uh, response yeah. to the world. Uh, yes, that's that has worked well for me. Um, you know, you might get away from your usual habits. We went to Fez, Morocco with you two, and it was fantastic. We had an entire Riyadh to ourselves, mm -hmm. and, and the, the culture... Uh, we were a block away from the Medina, and I love the Medina because it had recently been renovated in the year 900. <laughs> and so to go from Toronto or from Dublin and suddenly be in, in the old Medina, that's bound to have an effect on people. need to feel inspired and uh, the nice thing about changing location is if you're changing location for specifically with the idea of making an album then that album gets all the attention in the new location mm -hmm. and a more conventional studio that has more uh, more of a revolving door of many artists coming in and out it wouldn't have that feeling it would have something else I also get the sense that you tap into the energy of different places, like New Orleans, you know, L.A. when it's time, back to Toronto when it's time to kind of go back to the original mm -hmm. space, whatever. It seems like maybe you're, you're kind of reading the room, I guess is a way of saying it. Well, my travels were largely about education. I'm a small fry from Quebec, and I grew up with Quebec music and then moved to Steeltown, Canada, that being Hamilton, Ontario, and I heard some of the music there. But a lot of the music I heard on radio that I loved came from other places. came from Detroit, from uh, New Orleans, as you just pointed out. And so I thought, why not go to New Orleans mm -hmm. and go to the place where a lot of the music I've loved came from? And sure enough, it was all there. Hmm. Even the, you know, some tiny little bar 
hidden in a back room somewhere, mm-hmm. had a great band. Because the standards were very high there because people learn from other people in their neighborhoods. Where I grew up, if you want to learn to play a horn, you go to a conservatory mm-hmm. and you learn learn how to play a horn. In New Orleans, there's probably somebody down the street that's already playing the horn. And what about this as an idea that the the humidity content is so high in New Orleans that the, the notes ring longer mm. because uh, water is a conductor of sound. <laughs> I love it. You know, you talk about how you want to go back to childhood, and this record is a, is a kind of return to childhood. And I did a little quick math before we talked and discovered that player piano is coming out the week of your birthday. You're turning 71, the same week that this album is being released. Well, thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> what does it feel like? I think I'm 18, but it's, <laughs> I guess I was wrong. I'm just very grateful that um, I wake up in the morning and I'm excited about music and I'm inspired and I stop looking at the clock. Sometimes I don't even know what month it is. Hmm. And um, I have to be told by the people who work with me, who I admire, that I'm speaking to you at 12 when I didn't know what year it was. We just hope that uh, we don't get ground down by anything because um, I think the imagination can take us to infinity if we don't ruin it. What do you think some are some obstacles to ruining the imagination? Um, maybe we take too many punches and then we lose our our sense of innocence and humor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came into all this as a guitar player and as as a recordist. You know, I've had a recording studio since I was twelve, and so the the awe in all of it and the excitement is what always kept me going. And then, oops, here comes bureaucracy. What are the hundred items of bureaucracy? Well, what's your address? I don't have an address. Okay, you're nobody. Hmm. Do you have a license? Do you have a this? Do you have a permit? Boom. Do you have a this? Do you have a pass? Boom. And then you, you need to get your credentials in order and your you have to face bureaucracy or you don't get to make music. So that's part of the crushing. That's one example of a crushing of, um, of the gift. Did success have any challenge that came along with it? Like once you had some success, you're not just making it out of love or curiosity or wonder, but now here you made money for somebody and they might expect you to make more money for them. Did that mm. have any impact on the, the work or what the world wanted from you, what the business wanted from you? Mm. There's always that pressure. Um, if you've done something that has caught on and and now you're in the top ten. You know, I've had, I've made a lot of, worked on a lot of records that got in the charts, and uh, I made that Peter Gabriel record, the So album, in in a very humble situation. You know, Peter was his studio was in a cow barn at the time, and so we, but I didn't care. The countryside was beautiful, and but the building was nothing special, and had no air conditioning, and blah blah blah. It was a little bit rough, and then. Uh, it was a massive success, and all this money came in, and Peter was able to buy um, what is called Real World. You know, mm-hmm. it has half a dozen studios in it, and there's a mill house, there's this. this you know, it's fantastic what he did. But if you move out of the car, cow barn and you're now in the palace, 
is there a price to pay? And I'm not talking about Peter so specifically mm -hmm. now. Let's move on from that because sure. I love Peter Gabriel. Sure. Um, but the it's bound to change things. And I don't know that it ruins anything. It, if I suppose the, the best way to look at it is it opens up new kind of doors. Yeah. You know? It means that, in my case, that once I had songs in the charts that I had worked on, then I was able to uh, have meetings and um, office buildings in New York. I was being ushered around as, as you know, the kid with the Midas touch. And if you don't let it go to your head, that's a, then that's a very useful position to be in. Mm -hmm. You might choose to help somebody that wouldn't get any attention otherwise. But if I was to say at that point in my career, if I said, there's somebody down the road that I really believe in, and I'm inviting you to believe in them as well. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an opportunity. But I, I don't know about the downside of it all. You know, uh, I get up in the morning every day, come to work. I'm not on a yacht. I'm not skiing. Uh, I'm not in a bamboo hut in Tahiti. I'm at work, like you. What do you attribute that work ethic to, you know? I I mean, you are. You're kind of nonstop. You've been just hacking away at it the whole time. You know, where does that come from, that will to do that? Well, I'm glad you used the word hacking because there's a lot of hacking that goes on in the studio. Uh, I might embarrass myself 20 times, but then 20 times, and on the 21st time, I hit on a sound with my great friend and uh, co-producer, Wayne Lorenz. That's who you met a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, we wait for the golden moments to come our way. And we don't mind embarrassing ourselves. Um, but then when the little moments come, then that's the fuel to operate by. So that's a little, a little uh, fragment of magic, let's say. And once we have the magic, let's call them seeds, uh, then we, we, we uh, nurture the seeds, we water, we fertilize. And then a cup, up comes a vine, and then the vine will show us the way from there on. I notice... Often when asked a question about the process of how you work, you respond with the word we, not I, but we. Maybe you see yourself as a kind of a, a member of these teams or tribes that you assemble when you're working, you know, like that it's always been somewhat collaborative mm -hmm. going back to the yeah. studio with your brother all the way to today. I like to use we because people should be included. And if I'm working with someone and I go to the console, uh, I might say, could we try, rather than, um, here's what I want. Mm -hmm. uh, here's what I want will work for some of the time, but people like to be involved and included. So well, I have people with me who are great, Wayne Lorenz at the moment, and, and uh, I've had amazing people around me all my life. And so we are we. <laughs> That's okay. It's just it's just politeness. <laughs> sure, it's a communication strategy, but it seems to also reveal a kind of like a willingness to be inclusive. I think particularly as a producer, it's like such a dark art. It's such a mysterious thing. What does a producer do? You know, especially when you're yeah. producing a band, you're taking a band that already exists, it has an identity, it has its material, it has its following, right? Sometimes they already have their success, and they come to you or or an artist, whatever, and then they're going to interact with you. Well, what do you do? I would say that uh, people are looking for um, good advice, um, uh, ultimately looking for a friend, somebody musical who can help them make decisions. Uh, I like to use uh, 
my time with Neil Young as a point of reference. We recorded, we made a record called La Noise in, in Los Angeles. Very nice record. And um, I think we recorded 16 songs. And let's say 10 got on the record. So I was able to help Neil with the content. You know, let's, let's include these, but not the others. The others are also good, but they, they belong to another project. When I was a hitchhiker on the road, I had to count on you. But you needed me to ease the load and for conversation too. Or don't you just pass on through? So I'm very musical, so m my communication with artists is really about the music. Mm -hmm. I have a, a good understanding of arrangements, you know, just all the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, anyone who works with me would feel that they're, they're in a room with somebody who um, has an understanding of music in many ways, you know, rhythmically, you know, I can read, uh, I know harmonies, and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I can't speak for other record producers, but in my case, I have a musical relationship with people I work with. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your experience as an artist gives you a, a little insight into what other artists are going through? There's no doubt as, as an artist, uh, I, I go through what anyone goes through, you know, I, I might have um, a stockpile of melodies or riffs that are not songs yet, and we call you know they're in the orphanage, and we hope that they find a home one day. Mm -hmm. um, and I've I found that to be true with anyone I've worked with that they they would have a, quite an arsenal of beginnings of songs, and then uh, um, so I'm I'm considerate to the uh, um, that position where you have the beginning of something but it hasn't flourished yet mm -hmm. and that might be good for someone like me because I can spot an outstanding mm -hmm. small beginning and expand upon it with with an artist mm -hmm. and it was the same with with player piano you know I, I might have a little diddle that and Wayne Lorenz said oh no no hang on that that has um, a nice optimistic feeling to it and maybe I gravitate to something that's more melancholy and say, okay, you've covered the melancholy thing. Now, this little, little more optimistic thing that you've got going, let's, let's expand on that because the record would do well to have it. Mm -hmm. Do you think you gravitate towards the more melancholy in general? Absolutely. Not everything. Uh, I think melancholy works best when it has uh, something else in the picture. Let's get back to, to the picture mm -hmm. approach. Um, you know, you might have a little bit of sadness in one corner of your picture, but there's a there's a sun the sun is rising in the other corner. Um, you know, maybe uh, rags to riches would exist in there. Um, you know, the maybe the temple burnt down, but the uh, this uh, you know something's rising out of the ashes. So, you know, the to to present uh, complexity in one picture is i think is really good for art right so there there is no optimism without at least the possibility for tragedy on some level or loss yeah that's right on some level i think the uh, the, the yin yang of it um i think continues 
we wouldn't feel as good as we do if we didn't feel bad before. That's right. <laughs> and all that. <laughs> I I know that you're you know you're very deliberate about your work, and you know you seem to have uh, a real criteria and aesthetic and and values that guide you. But I've also seen a handful of examples of you really kind of improvising and using the studio as an improvisatory tool. I saw it not even the studio, but a tiny desk performance that you did with uh, Brian Blade and the bassist Jim Wilson some years ago, yeah. where you were <laughs> essentially improvising a mix over stems, it looked like, and your major tool was a little mixer and the delay unit. And, and that was all it, it took for you to kind of improvise this thing. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. It was a little, a little multi-track, I think an eight-channel mixer and with stems, allowing me to um, improvise sonically at the moment. Um, Brian Blade was wearing, was he wearing cans? Yeah, he had cans he on, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was feeding him a constant source of time yeah. that was not in the mix that was broadcasted. Uh-huh. And so the, the little... T- is always running in there. He can hear it. I can hear it, and then and then we can leave spaces, uh, reassured that the time continues and so on. And so the that that was my what I call my electro station that I had a tiny desk, and I still do that to this day. I still have a, an electro station for live, and it's really just packing up the studio and taking it on the road. But the preps happen in the studio. The stems, as you pointed out, for those who don't know stems. It's just a little premix of a specific ingredient that exists on its own and doesn't have its its a uh, rhythm section neighbor mm-hmm. in the blend at that time. So you get the ha 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 So you can cut things in and out. And a great example of that is uh, the work Brian Eno did on Talking Heads: Remain in Light. For a long time, I felt. Without style or grace, wearing shoes with no socks in cold weather. I knew my heart was in the right place. I knew I'd be able to do these things as we watch him digging his own grave. It was important to know that was where he's at. Uh, it was done on MCI 500 which is the console I had in my studio in Hamilton when I worked with Eno. And he said, well, that's a great console. So it had a very, very uh, nice way of grouping the stems. We weren't calling them stems in those days, so you could just have these little groups, and you could uh, feature a group for uh, a four- or eight-bar phrase and then switch to the other group for the next section and so on. And it's um, He's a brilliant mind, so he got to a very, very explosive and um, um, state with it all you know the he was just the best at it and I I picked up on a lot of that technique um, for when I worked with Brian back in Canada we were making ambient records mind you but the routings were all similar to what he was already doing in New York
Did he hear something of yours and seek you out? Is that how you started working together originally? He heard some demos that I made for these two great women named the Time Twins. They met him in New York and played him the work that we had done, and he loved it. He said, oh, that's very sonically adventurous. Uh, tell me more about how you made this. And my name came up, and he called out of the blue and booked some time. <laughs> and it seems like, I mean, you know, you talk about it here, and I've heard you talk about it in the past, that that relationship has really been something that stays with you, that you sort of have a little Brian on your shoulder sometimes when you're in the studio. <laughs> uh, that's a nice way to put it. Uh, the little Brian on my shoulder. I think that's the impact that any great friend has on anyone's life. Do you think you're standing on anybody's shoulder right now? I'll be standing on Wayne Lorenzo's <laughs> shoulder in a minute. Once we finish this, he's going to get angry, but that's how we get things done. Yeah. I think that uh, it's fair to say that a few people along the way who I've worked with, um, I taught them everything that I knew. I'm not saying everything they know, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything I knew. And then off they went, and let's call them apprentices at the time, and every great apprentice becomes a master. What do you recognize in a potential apprentice? Like, what do you see in somebody that gives you the sense that this person will be receptive to what I have to teach? I like people who move fast, who uh, are resourceful, and get things done. I've gotten to great places with people who were just starting out, and but I felt that they had a little spark in them, something special in them, and brought them on board. And I felt something from some of those people that I didn't feel from, from more seasoned uh, professionals. Hmm. Um, maybe it's the hunger thing, you know, somebody's getting started and they're happy to be there, and, and so they're not so bogged down by uh, professionalism. <laughs> <laughs> and so we break rules and when we don't even know what the rules are. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and again, that goes back to that childlike thing, right? Just remembering to break the rules, finding some new rules to break, break them in a new way. You know, it's a, it's a lifelong challenge. Yeah, kids get to have a lot of uh, a lot of that kind of fun. It disappears after a while, though, and I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of friends. You know, what happens? You know, you eight, maybe you're seven, eight, nine, and you're, you're still building the sandcastles and imagining uh, that a prince will come through the window, you know, there's fabulous wild things. And then maybe conformity comes in, uh, that uh, we feel like um, we need to belong to something, and then belonging to a club means that there'll be rules. You know, I was, I was an altar boy, and, in the Catholic religion, and you just did things in a certain way, and that was that. But I liked that club, so I conformed. I was in the Navy, well, sea cadet, and I conformed to their requirements, hmm. and, and so on and so on. And then I was a recordist. I love my studio, my craft. I, I, I lived for that. And then, and then I heard the word record producer but I didn't know what they were talking about. And I got called that, and then uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm in the Army. Mm-hmm. Another kind of Army. I have a title. I'm being paid, our expectations and so on. So how do we do that? How do, how do we conform and yet have that thing alive that everybody loves, imagination and something different? You say, you know, you don't know what day of the week it is or what year it is or whatever, you know. 
do you think that the music that you make or that music records in particular have a time are of their time things happen at a certain time for a reason mm. and that's part of the process of record making that we we hope to capture something that's alive at a given moment um every artist um has a potential to get there every era has its sound whether we like it or not i hear some of the records i made in the 70s and the 80s i wouldn't make them like that now but they they are true snapshots of what was happening with those people then, what we were excited about in the studio, what tools we were using. So they are proper records. That's the meaning of the word. A record is, it documents something that's alive at a given time. I think that it's not a contradiction, but I think the complexity of the way you see it and do it is that you are both capturing a performance, but also kind of creating or cultivating a sound around that you know your records have been but are often not just as you say coming right off the floor you know what i mean it's <laughs> often these are records that are are kind of then i don't know adorned afterwards they're kind of yeah. uh illuminated performances <laughs> well that's who i am you know i came up as a sound manipulator whatever you want to call it sound processor and I was doing it before I met Eno, and then when I met Eno, I thought, oh, this guy, that's all he thinks about. Hmm. So this is not a garnishing. So to turn, to go to the garnishing and turn that into a devotion rather than some little topping, I think is part of what you're talking about yes. here. To this day, I, I use the same technique that I... I use it on p player piano as I did with Eno, and then we, we um, for those who use consoles we float our effects and we uh, we uh, assign them to tracks on the recorder so that if something fantastic happens with effects then we print and we don't wait for a mixing day i mean times are different now because you can get pretty close to, with total recalls you know with uh, computerized equipment and so on but i came up as um what do you want to call me more of an analog, uh, let's use the word analog. Um, you might not be able to get back to the thing that you love at the moment later. So get it now. It seems like it's a performance. When I see you do it, it seems like you're performing these mixes, right? That this is yes. this is a, <laughs> an event that happened. Yeah. Well, it's no different than what DJs do live. You know, you, you do spins and you work the room and, and you, you decide what to bring in and out depending on how the crowd's moving, if the dancing's happening, and so on. I treat the console as a uh, as a musical instrument. You know, we still use, um, I have a, a giant Midas 4000 mm -hmm. here. Um, you can't see it in the picture. And it's, it's the last uh, great analog console made by Midas. And I, I love it. It's got everything I need. It'll wear out one day and I'll get something else. But... Uh, uh, performance is, is a big part of who we are. You know, the, I don't like mixes that are a nice flower arrangement. I like things to be, as Neil Young said, if it sounds dangerous, it's probably right. <laughs> I mean, did anybody try to get you to play with Ableton or with, you know, before that to do m more arranging in Logic or, you know, to mm -hmm. apply what you do to those tools? I've used Logic with Brian Eno. He was using Logic for a long time and he swore by it. We had some nice results. I, I didn't use 
logic in my own studio, but I, I use it with Eno. Then on another visit to Eno, he had Ableton and did some fantastic things. So it, I've not gone to that because I feel that I don't need to make a change at, at the moment. You know, I, I, I don't feel like my thing, my, my approach is played out for myself. If that ever happens, then I'll get some new equipment and so on. But certain things are have never gotten better. You know, a voltage control oscillator from the 70s is a wonderful thing, and I still use those. You know, I, I still have an old AMS harmonizer. It's got a beautiful VCO as my Lexicon Prime Time. It's a fantastic VCO as my Korg SDD3000. They're like light bulbs, though, these things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they no, burn out. I, again, I think that's part of my thinking around the question of, you know, whether or not certain records are of their time. Because I think that there is a kind of a thread running through popular assumed wisdom about what's happening in recorded music, which is that technology is evolving and it is the tool that we need to follow in order to stay present and current as opposed to the artist or the work. And I see that you continue to evolve and capture a moment in time over and over again while using some of the same tools that you were using 30 years ago and 40 years ago. Well, you make a very good point. It's, it's, it's easy to assume that you need the, you know, the latest uh, equipment to, to do great contemporary work. But I think contemporary work has to do with vision as much as anything else. Maybe somebody's been through... Uh, something emotional and they feel something deeply and that would be the center of the picture get back to picture that would be the center of picture not whether you know you're using a sequencer or a beatbox or somebody's hitting a tambourine that part of it wouldn't matter nearly as much as why is this person speaking why are they singing why do they write what they wrote um, and so on and so on so the the, I think the future belongs to vision uh, along with technology. You know, in its moment, the pedal steel was probably a very radical technological invention. I am in awe of that instrument, like the theremin or something. These are instruments that you come across and you think, I would love to devote my life to mastering something like this, but I don't have, the, I feel like I don't have the, the bandwidth for it. But it seems like an understanding and a mastery of the pedal steel is almost a preparation for anything else that follows. It has so <laughs> much music in it, and it has yeah. so much potential in it. It can get the steel guitar can get can get very close to the human voice. Um, the tools are very simple. You know, we have a volume pedal, and uh, which is a big part of it. So I can go. Whereas if you go to the piano, it goes ding, 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 ding. You wouldn't get it out of the piano. And so I think that kind of, the, the, uh, the ramping up, ramping down, the legato, the vibrato, because we can shake the bar a little bit. So we can start with... So you can, it, they can be, a steel guitar can be quite mournful. Mm -hmm. And... Um, because you have 
access to that part of the expression, you know, the the dynamic, the rise and fall, the vibrato, the bend, and all of that, all of those qualities belong to the human voice. Mm -hmm. So similar to the voice, I suppose. And then we get to play harmony. Uh, and here's something that never gets talked about. We defy equal temperament on a pedal steel mm. guitar. Because we get to play perfect major thirds that the piano cannot do. Equal temperament was designed uh, so that the piano could be played in every key. Mm -hmm. So ev all the intervals are a tiny bit out of tune. And so we steel guitar players get to go uh, 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 to that, and we play a beautiful chord with a perfect third. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have that going. Uh, but in regards to mastering such an instrument, uh, it's not something to flirt with. Um, in the way that you couldn't flirt with a violin, you know, mm -hmm. you have to put in your your years, and so I've I've been playing it's I've been playing it since I was a young teenager. I played slide since I was nine, and then I got my pedal steel a few years after that. You can't race through it. It's patience. You have to put in. You have to have patience. Put in the time. Love it. It loves you. You love it back. You make little modifications. One steel guitar is different than the other. Uh, you know, maybe. Uh, um, I try a different pickup, and uh, Seymour Duncan is winding my pickups now, my custom pickups for my old steel guitars, and, you know, little details like that. We're constantly modifying, pruning, making improvements, not only in our playing, but in our equipment. What drew you to that instrument? I mean, I can't imagine there were many steel guitar players around you in Steeltown, Ontario. Um, you're right. Um as a young guitar player, I played in a club in Toronto called the Brown Derby. And it was more of a show band place, you know, direct from Las Vegas, here they are, you know, that kind of place. And when we took a break, I'd walk around the corner to the Edison, and the Edison uh, was a country music spot. And I heard a player by the name of Bob Lucier, um, another French-Canadian, and he, he sounded so wonderful. He was humble and beautiful. He played these amazing little triads and was able to weave in and out. And I thought, oh, that's that instrument has the capacity to serve something else, to serve the center of the picture. And so when I went to it, I decided that I would do that because I was never about to be as great as some of the, those Texas players, you know, the... Uh, to play fast and it's amazing what they do and I could never be that so I followed in the footsteps of Bob Dussier. And do you think that that had an impact on your production style that sort of ambient wide vibrating overtone kind of concept of horizon I mean I don't know how much of those sounds are achieved from the pedal steel but it seems like it's a great mm. starting point. I think you're right that my embracing the, the pedal steel guitar at that age took me in a certain direction. And as I said a second ago, I wasn't about to be uh, a great, fast country picker. And so I went to a dreamier place with it. Mm -hmm. And then to eventually work with Eno and work on ambient records. So obviously these, these years have shaped my expectations with sound and who I am. And I'm still not a great, fast player to this day. <laughs> Did you grow up speaking French at home? Were you was your family proper French Canadian? You spoke French in the oh, house. Oh yes, yeah. I spoke only French till I was about ten or eleven. And how did that shape? Do you think your I don't know your sense of identity, your sense of the world? 
Oh, geez. Well, then we enter and talk about insecurities. You know, and, uh, I've had plenty of those, that's for sure. You know, like coming to an English school as a little French kid and failing the IQ test miserably mm. <laughs> and, and being told that I was a dumb kid and and uh, but that pushes you into a corner that you need to box your way out of and luckily I had music um, and then you know eventually I spoke English and I'm, I speak pretty well now and I speak eloquently and so everything worked out okay. <laughs> But there's no doubt you take a few shots along the way, don't you? Sure. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one. <laughs> I think it makes us great. I mean, I when I say us, I mean as people, you know, I think the the adversity is the thing that probably leads to to great work and great things that we yeah. do. Well, that's an interesting subject matter because in modern times we we think that um it should all be even Stevens, you know, every child should have the same access to everything and so on and it's it's a great thought it's an ideal but you're not too far off you know the you know i may have those kind of thoughts and i'm in a nice neighborhood here in toronto and lots of lovely families with baby buggies and everybody has money but then just a few blocks over you know there are um there's government housing and there's people in there that are you know below the poverty line and maybe somebody's lost a job and all that you know and i know that world pretty well because i my my mom had four kids single mom no not a nickel from daddy-o and she was a hairdresser so try that on for size so you know when you don't have uh the phd father uh with great mm-hmm. world knowledge and life advice you know the, a lot of kids don't have that so i think it's it's unreasonable to think that everybody's going to have access to the same things. I mean, every child's going to be different, of course. But so that's my story. You know, yeah. I came up a, a little bit confused and mm-hmm. wondering if I was not as smart as the other kids and so on. You know, <laughs> was there a moment in your life after you had achieved something or whatever? I mean, do you remember sort of saying to yourself, "I guess I can hang. I guess I am as smart as the others. Maybe even a little bit smarter than some of them." You know, what did it take <laughs> for you to outlive that? insecurity. I was crossing the Brooklyn Bridge and I heard on the radio in the name of love love," that I had just finished producing and up in the top of the charts and that was followed by I want to be sledgehammered and there was a lot of my work got in the top ten and I thought okay (laughs) Maybe I'm all right. <laughs> I went to Manhattan. I had the greatest time. Mm-hmm. I went on a, little, on a little shopping trip and bought myself some new shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you didn't have any money. Your mom was a hairdresser, four kids, and she somehow was quite um, not only permissive but encouraging of you and your brother to put this studio in your house, which considering you didn't have m- much to draw from was a real sign of support from her, I think, that she was behind you in that. Well, whatever smarts I got came from her, mm-hmm. a great woman. We had the studio in her basement for a decade. Mm. And uh, on the upside, she knew where we were. <laughs> it's true, that's true. Um, but she never once told me what to do, never suggested, uh, why aren't you going to college? 
she knew why I wasn't going to college. I was on my way to a PhD in her basement. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I've not met too many moms like her, a few, of course. Uh, but uh, she just left me alone. And then off we went, my brother and I. Your brother passed away in the last couple of years, right? Over on radio, yes. <laughs> Sorry. No. I was nodding my head. <laughs> no, no, I, I just gave you a minute with it because I'm in just knowing that you started out that way and that, you know, over the years, so many records, yeah. it seems like he was a kind of quiet presence on a lot of those records. Oh, he was a brilliant mind, uh, much more uh, of a scientist than me. And he um, was always uh, designing equipment to make improvements. Uh, we we there's a term that we used along the way. It's an electronic term called the breadboard, and the breadboard is uh, exposes all of your components, and you can see uh, what you have, and you can alter the values of certain components to see about making improvements and so on. So my brother always had breadboards going, and I might say to him, "Why can't I do this? And could you work it out? I can do that. And couldn't the sound go here?" And so I challenged my brother, and he always came up with a solution. Uh, brilliant, my great teacher to many, including myself. Was he, would you say, more slightly more technical and you more musical? Absolutely more technical than me. Um, musical, but not as much as me. Yeah. I understand that while you were in, the, in those 10 years in the basement of your mother's house, that among the artists who crossed the border to work with you, Rick James came into the basement and spent some time. Yes, I did work with Rick James in my mom's basement. And it was, uh, if I ever had a thought about going to study music in college and didn't do it, um, then Rick James, (laughs) with me for a week or so, was made up for all that, you know. An amazing talent. I can't say enough about Rick. A great drummer, singer, bass player. He played everything. The tracks that came out of my speakers I had never heard before. Mm. And so, uh, to this day, thank you, Rick. <laughs> Is that the space that Eno came to, or had you moved into a different studio by then? I had moved to a new location by the time I worked with Eno. I had found uh, an old house, uh, an old kind of a brownstone Victorian house for sale. It had enough parking for a few cars. Mm. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's get this place and get rolling. And so that's in Hamilton, Ontario, not too far from Buffalo. Mm. Um, and so that was it. That was the base. And that's where uh, Eno first came to work with me. Was there a moment when you thought, okay, I got to get out of Ontario now. It's time to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to be able to go so far while I'm here, or I'm going to be limited by staying here, that kind of thing. Mm. Yes, I did have those thoughts. And I imagined that we would go to New York and we went to New York, my brother and I, and, and we even started a little corporation in New York City with, in the back room of the lawyer's building, and it was this whole thing that, that never never blossomed beyond that, but we were excited about perhaps going to New York. Um, but it was around that time, my brother didn't want to do it anymore. Hmm. He said, I'm maxed out, and I can't be in, in the studio for those kind of hours anymore. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to hurt physically and mentally. And I said, okay, Bob, no problem. I'll, I'll handle the studio part. You can stay in the office. So we worked that way for a while. 
Then eventually he, he got his cabin in the woods and chose uh, to have his feet on the ground while I... He says, you go ahead and spin your wheels. I'm not doing it anymore. So <laughs> I admire that he said that and did that. Yeah. He might have been smarter. <laughs> what I just want to ask you about a couple of relationships that, I mean, I don't know are, are the common questions or not, but to me, I'm just such a huge Brian Blade fan for so long, and I see that at some point you connected with Brian, and that became, you know, you thought this is going to be one of my... This is going to be one of my guys, you know? Yeah. Uh, we're seeing Brian uh, tomorrow. He's oh. coming here. He'll be in the studio that I'm talking to you from. Fantastic. We've got a whole drum kit set up and everything. I've got oh, an old top hat and cane <laughs> kit ah. for him. Surprise him with that. Oh, cool. Uh, the, old, um, the old Black Beauty snare drum. Um, I'm missing a few cymbals. Did somebody walk away with my cymbals, Wayne? My goodness. Um but uh, he is uh, obviously a great musical uh, force, but a, a fantastic person. And I've been knowing him since, uh, I guess, since he was 20. Uh, I met him in New Orleans. And, um, uh, you know, I had a studio down there for a long time. Iggy Pop was making a record there. And I went for a walk with Iggy. And we went by this place called Cafe Brazil just in the afternoon and the most amazing drumming was coming out of this place and we stuck our heads in and Iggy said, man, make sure you get this guy's number. <laughs> so that's how it happened and we keep in touch. Brian does, he's, he never stops, you know, he's on the road he, and he's, he's played with so many of the great uh, giants of jazz, um, Wayne Shorter, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, the list goes on. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so, um, but we have a certain alignment. Uh, you know, I'm not so involved in jazz, um, but he, I believe Brian appreciates there's always something unexpected that will come his way when he turns up in my studio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like a very complimentary relationship. I, you know, I just look at your discography, and in the same period that you're producing... Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson and Luscious Jackson and you two. Here's this Brian Blade Fellowship record. Yeah, we made that record in California in Oxnard um, when I had my shop in an old Mexican theater. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very uh, great recording session. It happened over the course of about a week. Mm -hmm. And we, we recorded uh, all week. And then on the Friday night, we had a bunch of folks come over put a little audience together uh, we had some bleachers from the Mexican restaurant across the street and we built a nice little uh, a little venue for folks and everybody came out had a good time and we played all the music that we'd been playing working on all week we played all of it on the Friday night and 80% of that album came out of the Friday night so there it is people play better when there's people around <laughs>
Yeah. Well, and you know, and then that speaks to your, you know, the the, the thing you talked about earlier today, which is about waving your hands you know the value of being a guy in the room just waving your hands like that you you become the sort of de facto audience or even if you're not playing anything just as somebody in here who is responding to us you know well we operate on energy and momentum um you know yes we have our gifts and we have our know-how and all that but uh we are people and we we respond and we negotiate and if somebody and we uh, we have there's call and response in music, mm-hmm. and it might not be so specifically about a call and response. Uh, um, what's a call and response song that we can name? Uh, Fred or Jacques? That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have to be Fred or Jacques. Mm-hmm. Somebody might come in a room and they've been through something recently, and they 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 hold that energy inside them and when they come in the building you feel that energy and then you have yours and then you have this i don't know how, whether it's a we used to call it the snowball effect you know and something gets said something gets yeah. repeated and back and forth you get the ricochet and the resonant frequency of it all it takes us to an explosive moment and hopefully we capture it and that's the mysterious part of it all you know the uh who are we? Why are we doing it? Who's coming in? Who's singing well? You never know what you're going to get. And uh, all of that lives outside of uh, equipment. You started making records in the 1960s. You lived through an extremely fertile, creative part of modern popular culture. Yes. The, the record business sort of came and went in, in that time. I mean, I guess it was there when you started, but it exploded, millions of records sold, pop, radio, <laughs> yeah. all, all of that. that. Yeah, ubiquity, all of that kind of stuff. And here we are in a moment when it's a very different reality. It would be reasonable for somebody trying to be in the music business today to ask if it makes any sense to do this you know, if there are still stories to tell, if 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 the business is worth being in, all of that kind of cynicism. Well, I suppose the the word business doesn't. Yeah. It's not a very nice thing to yeah. associate with uh, with music. Cause, I mean, I do some of my best playing when there's nobody in in the building. There's no business at hand. <laughs> I, I might come to the piano early one morning and play something that's beautiful, and I'm not thinking about it's viability or anything. I'm just thinking that I'm living in the moment. But uh, we're never going to see the cultural revolution that we saw in the 60s. There'll be other revolutions to come. They're already at play. Um, The thing that never goes out of fashion is congregation. So live shows are bigger than they've ever been. You know, to to play to 60,000 people or 80,000 or 100,000, that never happened in the 50s and the 60s. Mm. And then I looked up yesterday, the, the new venue that's coming up in Las Vegas called The Sphere, and they promise, uh, what about this? You got a big world tour and you're hauling a PA around in 18-wheelers, scaffolding, and cranes, and everything, everything's going up. These people, The Sphere, They've got everything in there already, mm-hmm. and it's the best state of the art, the best sound, the best uh, screen mm-hmm. possibilities, mm-hmm. everything. I can't wait to see how it goes because imagine you travel and you show up at the Sphere and all you've got is 
you know, you got your little hard drive or your tie clip with everything that you need on it, all the information, and the sphere responds to your command. Mm -hmm. So that's the future, really, of sound and sight um, and congregation, those kind of places. Mm -hmm. But you don't feel for yourself that there's any reason to stop. Like, you still have more stories to tell and more music to make. More stories to tell, for sure. I'm feeling it every day, and I feel it in my neighborhood. We were in, in Europe not too long ago. I felt some nice things there. We were in, in East Berlin, and there was a bohemian life there that I have not felt anywhere else in a while. Um, for me, it felt as though uh, what happened in the village in New York was, was still blossoming in Berlin, for example. Um, and so it's constant, things are constantly shifting, people are moving around, uh, it's fascinating what's going on and, you know, the migration of people and displacement and so much, and it's just turning into this incredible melting pot. Um, the only worry I have is, uh, excessive amount of options. Mm-hmm. So, um. I think limitation is a is a good thing for a young person to pour their artistry into. Do you get approached to produce people's projects? Do 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 people come to you for for that kind of work? I, I get approached to produce projects all the time because of my body of work. Just things have changed for me. You know, the it has all merged into one. There was a time when. The recording studio was that, and playing live is a very different thing. But we take the studio to live. You talked about my little mm -hmm. stems rig earlier. You know, I'm doing a show here uh, around the corner, the little street fest in a, in a week. And uh, I'm going to play that. I'm going to bring my electro station up. And it's a Polish festival because it's a Polish neighborhood here. So I, there's a Polish folk song that I like, and I might put that in my uh, electro rig and dub off of it. And celebrate the fact that this has been a, a Polish neighborhood for a long time and take it to Electro. I love it. I, I want to ask a question, and, it, you know, if it's not a space you want to go to, I would completely appreciate it. I saw you were interviewed a couple of years ago, and you were asked to choose one of your favorite records or a handful of your favorite records, and you, you answered by saying, you're asking me to choose one of my, my children. Oh, and, <laughs> yeah, that would have been in regards to work that I've That I've you've made. done. Yeah. Yeah. I am here actually trying to raise a live human child and have a career at the same time. And sometimes I look at the flexibility that would be afforded to me if I was not so rooted in the domestic mm. responsibility that I have. I mean, okay. Well, I, I've heard some of my friends, you know, with young children say something similar. A friend of mine called it, oh, being tamed by duty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, being tamed by duty. I, I yes. had a, a, a line in one of my songs, uh, uh, a song that Emmylou Harris, uh, raising kids from raising hell mm -hmm. is, yes. the, is the line. Yes. <laughs> my cool and distant Now we drink at Liberty Station Did you um, feel tamed by duty at any point? Did you avoid being tamed by duty in your career, in your life? I deliberately sidestepped some domestic uh, 
chapters. And part of me has regrets about that. I've, I've known some, I've been with many great women and I could have, if I'd said something nice, and mm-hmm. agreed to a few things and we could have had a family and I moved on and, mm-hmm. and uh, my thought was always, well, I think my music is going to suffer if I go there. And uh, I don't know that that's true, but that's how I felt in regards to myself. You know, Bob Marley had a lot of kids, and his music never suffered. <laughs> so it might have just might have just been the man in the mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm going to be a grandfather in November, so uh, it starts all over again. Oh, fantastic! Well, there, that's <laughs> wonderful, man. Yeah, I mean, I can see though that you know when music was the thing that really saved you, or or at least. D- directed you, guided you. It was the yeah. principle. It was the fundamental principle in your life that anything that could be perceived as derailing that would be, you know, a pretty scary thing. You're not too far off. I, I didn't want to be interrupted. Um, I understand the, uh, the power of momentum and um, I felt that when I was working with Eno making those ambient records, he didn't like to be disturbed. Didn't want to be taking a phone call because he, he said to me that it would take him a good half hour to get back to where he was at with the vibe and you know the emotion and, and with the understanding of details and the work. And if somebody opens the door, hey, can you take a call? Uh, well, um, it might not be quite the same day again. That's why I didn't do too much work before I talked to you, because I didn't want you to be accused of dragging me away from anything. So I'll be coming in fresh after us. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me before you're going to do whatever else you do today. And Daniel Lanois, thank you for taking this time and sharing these experiences. Yeah, well, you're very welcome. And I, uh, what I always say is other people are taking the time to do things. And you're taking the time to promote my new record, Player Piano. It's a beautiful record. I think it will touch hearts, and it deserves to be talked about. So I'm, I'm willing to uh, put some time aside, and so are you. And then what about everyone else along the way? You know, the, maybe there's a promoter that's starting a little club, and or there's somebody's, you know, in graphic, and this, and we all work, we all have to work together, or else. Or else we might as well just stay home and play on the porch. <laughs> well, congratulations on the new record, and thank you for, honestly, for uh, more than a lifetime of incredible music that has impacted so many of us. That's a lovely compliment, and I'll put that in my pocket for today's work. Thank All right, you. man. All right, take care. There he was, my friends, the incredible Daniel Lanois. Check out his new record, Player Piano. The Third Story is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Leo Sidrin, in partnership with WBGO Studios. I'll be back again in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.